All right. We're going to be continuing our series. Uh, it happened in Corinth 2, uh, but uh, we're going to be uh, in uh, both chapters 9 and 10 today. Let me, uh, let me start off with a quick prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that you be with us now as we uh, take a challenge from your word. I pray that you would help us to hear this challenge rightly and to respond in a way that will be pleasing to you. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, uh, who knows who this guy is on the picture here? Tom Brady. He's the quarterback of the New England Patriots. The last 16 years, he's been the quarterback for the Patriots. And, you know, uh, for those who aren't really into football, the quarterback is not just another player on the team. The quarterback is the most important player on the team, and he's kind of the, the team leader and, uh, and the guy who's most responsible for the success or failure of the team. And Brady has led his team to a lot of success. During his uh, years with the Patriots, the team has never had a losing season. They had one season, the only season ever in the history of the league, 16-0, perfect regular season. Um, and uh, Brady has won more games in his career than any other quarterback in the history of the NFL. Patriots have won their division 15 times out of the 16 years that he's been playing. Um, he has led his team to the Super Bowl eight times. Now, there's 32 teams in the league, two play in the Super Bowl each year. 50% of the years that Brady has played, he's been in the Super Bowl. Um, and he's won the championship game five times. He was named the most valuable player of the Super Bowl four times, which is more than any other player. He's also been the overall league most valuable player three times, including last year when he was 40 years old. Now, personally, I'm not really a huge fan of Brady and the Patriots because I'm an Indianapolis Colts fan. And a few years back when the Colts had some really good teams, the, they came up against the Patriots in the playoffs four times, well, five times total, four times they got beat by the Patriots and knocked out of the playoffs, so... But even though I don't cheer for them, I recognize that the Patriots have a great team and that Tom Brady is a great player. And, of course, football is a team game. They also have a great coach. They have some, had some other great players over the years. But a lot of the credit for the Patriots' success can be given to Tom Brady. And one of the things that's really amazing people lately about Brady is that he doesn't seem to be slowing down at all as he's getting older. In fact, he was, as I mentioned, the, the MVP of the league at 40 years old. And some of his long career of success is due to the incredible discipline that he has in his life. In order to prepare himself for success, Brady goes way beyond what is required of him by his team and his coaches in his training. He believes that sleep is very important, so he goes to bed at 9 o'clock every night. And while he's sleeping, he sleeps in special pajamas they're called bioceramic recovery wear, and they reflect far infrared energy back into the body while he sleeps. Now, science is a little doubtful on that one, but he believes in it, and he does it. Um, he wakes up at exactly 6 a.m. every morning and immediately drinks 20 ounces of purified water that's been enhanced with 72 trace elements. Then he exercises about four hours every day. He has a full-time personal plyometric masseuse who massages his muscles using special techniques every day so he can be pliable and, and uh, flexible. And, of course, he's on a super strict diet. 
he never cheats on his diet. Uh, in order to maintain his mind in top form, he also does computerized brain training exercises. And he says that he plans to keep playing until he's 45 or even longer. Now, earlier this year, a series of videos came out called Tom vs. Time uh, that were about his determination to extend his career into his 40s. And in the trailer for the video series, he says this. He says, what are you willing to do and what are you willing to give up to be the best you can be? If you're going to compete against me, you better be willing to give up your life because I'm giving up mine. So what are you willing to do and what are you willing to give up to be the best you can be? We're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 now, where uh, starting in verse 24, Paul says this. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. So here Paul is using a sports metaphor to illustrate and talk about the kind of dedication that we as Christians ought to have towards spiritual pursuits. Now in ancient Corinth, the big uh, athletic event was the Isthmian Games. And that was uh, held in Corinth, and uh, it was second most important games after the Olympics, which were held up, up the uh, northern Greece. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, Paul compared the Christian life to running a race at the games. And his challenge to the Corinthians is to run in such a way as to win the prize. But, of course, you don't win the prize just by showing up at the starting line and running really hard, giving it your full effort. That's not enough. If you want to win the race, you have to take part in extensive training before the day of the race. Paul calls it strict training. Now, I'm not sure exactly what kind of uh, training techniques were used in Corinth in those days, uh, but, but it, it involved uh, significant self-discipline and working really hard, and probably not exactly what Tom Brady does, but some kind of strict training. And then Paul goes on to talk here about three more specific sports metaphors to further illustrate the point. First he says, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. That is, he runs the course straight for the finish line. And that metaphor made me think more about cycling than running, because in cycling, there's this thing, uh, when you're riding a bike, there's a natural tendency to kind of weave around and drift back and forth a little bit as you're riding. Um, it's usually not a very large amount, and uh, if you're not really paying attention to it, you don't even really notice it. Uh, but um, if you're riding a long-distance race, like, for instance, in a professional race like the Tour de France, the average stage of the Tour de France is a little over 100 miles. Well, in 100 miles, if your little weaving um, adds up to maybe one-quarter of 1%, not very much, right? 0.25% uh, of your, but that would make you a quarter mile behind where you would be if you had ridden straight. And so one of the things that, uh, that bike racers do is they practice riding very straight with no weaving back and forth. And one of the ways that I was taught to practice that is when you're on a road where there's no traffic, you can ride on the white line on the shoulder of the road and try to 
ride exactly on that line without drifting off the line at all. It's only like that wide. It's hard um, to stay on there without ever letting your tires get off. But if you can do that, if you can ride perfectly straight, the course is shorter. And so um, what you try to do is, is have that perfect thing. And, and it'll give you a real advantage in the race. And that's the kind of focus on spiritual goals that Paul is talking about when he says, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. It's not enough that you simply don't wander off in the completely wrong direction. Obviously, that would be bad if you took a wrong turn. But he's talking about you're going generally in the right direction, but you still need to have that focus on keeping it straight. Your concentration on staying on the course and not weaving around. You head straight for the goal. And then Paul switches sports metaphors, and now he says, I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. That is, when you throw a punch, you don't just punch out into random areas in the air. You punch the other guy in the face. <laughs> That's how you box. You, every punch is purposeful, not just uh, beating the air. The point of the metaphor is that in, in our efforts in life must be focused on our spiritual purposes. Don't get distracted swinging punches at other targets that prove to be pointless. And then Paul gives kind of a summary statement that he strikes a blow to his body and makes it his slave. Of course, Paul's not actually hitting himself. The point is that he is denying his physical desires, disciplining his body, and making his body his slave to do good rather than being a slave to his body and his base appetites. So are you going to serve your body and its passions and appetites, or is your body going to serve you and your spiritual goals? Don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So if you want to win the prize, you won't get it by coasting through life, giving a half effort. You need to put all of your energies into accomplishing your spiritual purpose. You won't win the prize if it is third on your priority list. So, so far what we have here is kind of a, a, a pep talk. Focus on the goal. Run to win the prize. Uh, focus on the goal. Don't wander around. Use your energy to strike purposeful blows. Discipline your body. Make it your slave. Be like Tom Brady. Order your whole life around winning the prize. Tom says, what are you willing to do and what are you willing to give up to be the best you can be? If you're going to compete against me, you better be willing to give up your life because I'm giving up mine. That's the kind of commitment that Paul is talking about when he talks about going into strict training. The Bible calls us to order our entire lives around our spiritual goals. Now, I know that this is all very inspiring and all that, but I'm pretty sure for some of you, there's a little voice in the back of your mind somewhere that is saying something like, really, though? That really kind of sounds like more work than necessary. Sure, there's some people who take things to that kind of extreme, and good on them. That's really great. But I don't think that I really need to uh, go in that kind of a fanatical, strict training. That's just not for me. I'll just go to the gym a couple times a week, skip dessert most of the time, and, and hope there's a participation trophy at the end. 
So let's talk about that. Why should we take things to this kind of extreme commitment? Why be this, this uh, passionate and extreme in our seeking after our spiritual goals? And the first reason that's mentioned here in the context is in verse 25, where it says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. They do it to get a crown that will not last. The crown that he's talking about here is the, that laurel wreath you see in the pictures of the Greek uh, athletes. They wear those uh, leaves in their hair. Uh, that was the award that was given to the champion in the games. Um, these wreaths are made of green branches, sometimes laurel, sometimes other types of branches. But uh, after a few weeks, there really wouldn't be much left of them. They would uh, fade away. They were just a very fleeting thing. And, uh, and really, even the memory of them fades away pretty quickly. Um, maybe some of you can remember that it was the Philadelphia Eagles who won the Super Bowl last year. A very dramatic uh, story with that. But who can tell me who won the Super Bowl four years ago? I had to look it up. It was the Seahawks. Um, but uh, the Bible says that though athletes compete for these wilting, leafy crowns, we stand to win eternal crowns, crowns that will last forever. Now, to really understand what the Bible's talking about here, where are we going to win these crowns? What, what's this all about? We have to go back a few chapters in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians to chapter 3. So flip back to chapter 3 with me here. And, uh, and in this chapter, Paul's talking about himself and Apollos and Peter and other church leaders, and he's uh, explaining to the church that all these guys, we're all on the same team, we're all working together toward the same goal, and we're all playing our own role in building up the church of God. It says, uh, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And then he, then, and he expands on that metaphor of the workers on a construction project. He says, he has laid the foundation of the church in Corinth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the gospel of salvation. And, uh, and then in verse 12, he says this. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. There will be a time. The Bible often calls it that day, or in this passage, it's just the day. The day when the servants of God will stand before his throne and each person's work will be evaluated. Now, this is not a judgment to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's a, that's a different judgment. Um, this one is only for those who've already passed that judgment. And it's, it's only for the servants of God 
who will be in God or be with God forever and eternity. And, and, and each of us is expected to be involved in building up the church. But what does that mean? What does it mean to build up the church? Um, here in chapter 3, he's specifically talking about how different people in the church are given different responsibilities, different tasks, different roles, and different ways of serving God and his kingdom. But I'm really not going to say very much about that today, and here's why. Because next week, uh, Mike will be uh, preaching about the discussion of spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll be uh, learning about those spiritual gifts and how God has gifted uh, all believers with special abilities to be used um, for the sake of the church. But really, even that is just the beginning. Because, see, in our summer event flyer, which you can get back there by the by the uh, connect card box or on my table back there, the summer event flyer has in it um, a description of a thing that we're doing this summer called uh, Thursday night summer Bible classes. And they will be starting in a couple of weeks uh, when Mike and I will be teaching for six weeks on the concept of how God has shaped us for service. And that idea of, of shape it gets beyond just spiritual gifts, that's part of it, but it also goes on to see how God has specially created you to serve him also with your heart, uh, that is your passions and desires, your abilities, your specific personality, and your experiences. So all those things, we're going to talk about each one of those on those Thursday nights, and how we are to use all of that to uh, build up the church, to build up the kingdom of God. So if you really want to understand how you specifically should be working to build the kingdom of God, be sure to be here next week for Mike's sermon on uh, spiritual gifts, and then be here on Thursdays, starting July 12th, for the next six weeks. It's going to be a really good time. We're going to be grilling out. Hopefully it'll be weather like this every night. Um, we'll be grilling out. We'll have stuff for the kids, and we'll have classes. It's going to be right here at uh, Wendler. So don't miss that. But for now, we're just sticking with the main idea that each of us will be judged based on the work that, uh, that we are doing to build up Christ's church. And if we build well and our work passes the test, we will receive a reward. What kind of a reward? Well, according to our passage there in, in chapter 9, it will be a crown that will last forever. But that's, that's a sports metaphor. It's not a literal description of, uh, of exactly what the reward's going to be. We really don't know exactly what the reward will be. But do you think that God is going to give you a lame reward? That's actually a serious question. Because uh, you might not say that out loud. Oh, yeah, I don't care what God, God's not very good at giving rewards. But you might live like you believe that. Do you believe that the reward that God has promised us is going to be worth the effort? It really doesn't even matter exactly what the reward is. If you think back to Tom Brady again, what reward is he trying to win? A Super Bowl trophy. Well, guess what? I can buy a replica Super Bowl trophy with custom text on it for 40 bucks on Amazon. And I can get a pretty nice replica for about the cost of some of those bioceramic pajamas that he wears. So what makes the trophy valuable is what it means, not what it is. 
Think about the laurel wreath that the Greek athletes won. It wasn't valuable because of what it was. It was just some common branches. It was valuable for what it meant. And when God judges the work that you have done for his kingdom, and he gives you an eternal reward, whatever form that actually takes, and I actually think it's probably going to be something that you're really going to enjoy. It's going to be something really great. Uh, But besides how enjoyable and nice the reward is, the meaning of the thing is what's really going to make it great. Even if it does turn out to be some kind of hat made out of eternal leaves, it will be great because it was given to you by God because he was pleased with your work. And we should never forget also that there's another possibility at this judgment. The other possible outcome is that you will not be rewarded, but rather you will suffer loss. That's chapter 3, verse 15. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. The Bible does reassure us here that our salvation is not going to be based on our works. Um, Our salvation is based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We just sang that song, Nothing But the Blood, right? And and that's that's true. our, Our eternal destiny is based on the blood of Jesus and his work on the cross. So even if we fare poorly in this judgment of works, Um, we will still be saved. Uh, But now it's tempting to have an attitude that goes something like this then. Well, hey, even the worst situation in heaven is going to be pretty good, right? Um, So I'm just going to be so happy to get there that I'm really not even going to care all that much whether I receive a reward or suffer some kind of loss. Escaping through the flames with singed eyebrows, hey, that's that's okay. Um. And there's some truth to that, right? There is some truth to that. But people, really, at this judgment, you will either be rewarded by God or you will suffer loss. Now, I don't know exactly what the loss that will, will be that, or what the reward will be, but here's the thing. You want to get the reward. You do not want to suffer the loss. Just coasting through, hoping the loss won't be too bad, is not the way to live. Run in such a way as to win the prize. When you receive your reward from God, you will not be disappointed. Or if you suffer the loss of the judgment, you'll not say to yourself, eh, that was no big deal. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Live like an athlete in strict training disciplining your whole life toward winning the race. Paul says, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Paul is disciplined and focused because he does not want to be disqualified from the prize. Paul knows that the prize is going to be great, and he wants to win it. Then he gives us a series of warnings, and then at the end, one final word of encouragement. He says, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors uh, were all under the cloud, 
and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul mentions this whole list of spiritual advantages that the ancestries he's talking about is the Jews of the Exodus generation that came out of uh, slavery in Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, all that stuff, went to Mount Sinai. Um, and, uh, and, and they were all guided by God's presence. They saw the miraculous power of the God as they walked through the Red Sea. They ate the manna from heaven. They drank the water that miraculously came out of the rock in the desert. Um, they were the chosen people of God and had all of these great spiritual experiences and advantages. But the Bible says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. They were the people of God, but God was not pleased with most of them because of their sin, and they suffered the judgment of God. The Bible tells us that these things happened as a warning to us. You see, Paul was warning the Christians in Corinth, look, you guys are the people of God. You have been saved by putting your faith in Jesus. You have had many great spiritual experiences. You're also eating the spiritual food in the communion. You're drinking the spiritual drink in the communion. You're, you're, you're baptized into Christ. You, but you have all these great spiritual experiences, but there is still a danger that God may not be pleased with you, and you might still suffer loss, both in this life and in the judgment. The danger that Paul's warning about here is not simply the temptation to coast through life without going into strict training and striving to win the prize. He's the example of the Jews from the Exodus generation is an example of setting their hearts on sin. And he lists several incidents from the book of Exodus. He says, do not be idolaters, that is, worshiping false idols, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. See, the people who escaped from Egypt through the Red Sea and saw the miraculous delivery from slavery, they did not have a good track record. They doubted God, they grumbled and complained, they worshiped false gods, they committed sexual immorality, and God was not pleased with them, and they suffered loss. The Bible says, again, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Now, the Bible doesn't have another sports analogy here, but I have one. Uh, who knows who this guy is? Anybody know this guy? Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel. Uh, he was a huge star in college at Texas A&M. Uh, he set a bunch of records, won a bunch of awards. He was the first freshman ever to win the Heisman Trophy, which is the trophy they give to the most outstanding player 
in all of college football. Um, and after his college career, he was drafted in the first round of the NFL draft by the Cleveland Browns. Uh, but the Browns were taking a bit of a risk in drafting him, even though he was uh, you know, the most outstanding player and all that, because uh, it, it w the risk wasn't that he wasn't a great player, but because of issues that he had off the field. Uh, Johnny was way too into the party scene. He was a very heavy drinker. Also, he was uh, into drugs and, uh, and, and all kinds of uh, illegal partying and things, and his friends and family worried about him a lot. At one point, his father stated publicly, the best thing for Johnny would be if he got arrested and went to jail. That's what, that's what he needs. Uh, Manziel checked himself into rehab after his first season with the Browns. Um, he also had a reputation for being lazy in practices, refusing to work on his skills, continued to party, and lied to his coaches about it. Um, after two seasons in the NFL, the Browns cut him, and no other team was willing to give him a job. Uh, he went back into rehab again. He's out now. He says he's clean, but no NFL team has been willing to give him a chance. And the temptations of the party lifestyle ruined the career of a very talented player. He is, in many ways, the opposite of Tom Brady. He had no discipline, uh, not living up to his potential at all. So who are you going to be? Are you going to be Brady or are you going to be Manziel? Our passage this morning finishes with a word of encouragement. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The temptations that you face are the same kinds of temptations that were faced by the Israelites in the Exodus, same temptations faced by all of us. The temptation to be spiritually lazy, the temptation to seek after the wrong goals, temptation to seek physical pleasure over spiritual good, temptations to self-indulgence. But when you feel any of those temptations, don't forget that you will not face a temptation that is too strong for you. It is always possible, with God's help, to find a way to endure the temptation and to say no without falling. Conclude with a final word of encouragement from the biblical book of Hebrews, where it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So my question now is, what in your life is hindering you that you need to throw off? What entangling sin do you need to rid yourself of? What are you willing to do and what are you willing to give up to be the best you can be? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us.